Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to 2 Peter, and we're going to pick up where we left off in our study of this letter. But I'm not going to walk us verse by verse through this next text um, the way I normally do, at least not today, because I have um, a subject on my mind and my heart that I want to share with you, and this text really is the perfect springboard to do that. I've had the privilege this past week of doing back-to-back memorial services, one Friday night, one Saturday morning, and whenever I have the honor of doing a funeral, a memorial service, to me it's just like fishing in a barrel. Um, What I mean by that is it's a perfect opportunity to preach the gospel because people are staring death in the face. And we typically all don't like to think about death, and so, but we're forced to think about it when we come to a, a, a funeral or a memorial service, and so it, everybody's, it's on everybody's mind, and so it's a perfect opportunity to simply ask the question, hey, when it's your time to die, do you know for sure where you're going to spend eternity? And then that just lends itself to the gospel and just helping people understand what does it mean to be a Christian? How can you be sure uh, that you're going to heaven when you die? We also started our membership class this last Wednesday, our Life at Lakeside class, and uh, really the the first class is all about uh, helping people uh, know for sure that they're saved. I I told everyone in the class, uh, hey, we only have one requirement to be a member of Lakeside Bible Church, and that's that you're truly born again. And uh, we want to know that, we want you to know that. Um, ultimately, we can't know that. Only the Lord knows that, right? But we try to do whatever we can to help people communicate uh, their story. Uh, we have them write out their testimony. We even ask them questions, um, like if you were to stand before God someday, uh, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Uh, just to kind of get from their heart, right? Uh, what, what are they trusting in? Where is their hope? Where is their confidence in, in going to heaven? And it's not uncommon uh, for someone to, to just say, hey, pastor, could I spend a few minutes with you? You got a few minutes? I, I just would love to talk to you about something. And, and they come into my office and they begin to talk about how they're doubting their salvation. And uh, they, they really need to be encouraged to consider uh, the ways that they can know for sure uh, that they're saved and that they're on their way to heaven. And it's a very common thing that every Christian, I think, struggles from with from time to time, and and then and then in the providence of God, the the very next text here in in Second Peter is one of two places in the Bible where we are encouraged and even commanded to make sure that we're truly saved. And so it seems appropriate that we would talk about this this morning. How can we be sure that we are Christians? Let's read together Second Peter chapter one verse five. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. 
Therefore, here it is, verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to discuss a very important, a very practical subject, and that is the assurance of salvation. And there's a lot of confusion in the church today about whether or not we can actually know for sure that we're going to heaven when we die. Uh, To some, that may sound presumptuous, um, maybe even arrogant, but Lord, show us from your word today how that is not presumptuous or arrogant. That's just what your word calls assurance and confidence and hope. And so, Lord, would you guide and direct us by your spirit Uh, Teach us what you want us to know so we can be who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Great Awakening was the greatest revival in American history, which occurred about 250 years ago uh, in the colonies along the East Coast. And the primary tool that God used to stir up that revival was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And through his preaching, large numbers of people were apparently converted to Christ But it didn't take long to realize that some of those who professed to have become Christians weren't. Even though they claimed to have had some kind of moving experience, their lives lacked any evidence that they were truly saved, which led critics to attack the Great Awakening as nothing but a big emotional sham that failed to produce any genuine lasting conversions. And so in response to these critics, Edwards wrote what became one of his most popular books. It was called A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. And in this book, he explained the distinguishing marks of true conversion. And he also, at the same time, exposed false conversion. And he came to the simple conclusion that the ultimate proof of true conversion is what he called holy affections. Holy affections. And what he meant by that was a person who is truly saved will have a sincere longing after God and a a sincere desire to be holy. Edwards had become convinced of this through his study of God's word that true conversion always produces a change in both the direction and the affections of that new convert. So consequently, if a person's life never changes after they get saved, that's evidence that never really, they never really got saved. And so Edwards believed that the only way a person could be absolutely sure that they were truly saved is, is the presence of these holy longings and, and affections which were produced uh, in a person by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Listen to the words of Edwards himself. And I'm quoting here, he says, Assurance is never to be enjoyed on the basis of a past experience. There is need of the present and continuing work of the Holy Spirit in giving assurance. End quote. My personal testimony, my salvation story, I think, illustrates Edward's point. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home, as most of you know. I never... I can remember a time I didn't believe that I was a sinner and that Jesus died for me and that I needed to live for him. Uh, The first time I ever prayed to receive Christ was at a summer backyard Bible club when I was seven years old. 
And as I grew older, I prayed the, the sinner's prayer countless times, really any time I had the opportunity, just in case. I wanted to know for sure that I was truly saved, but even though I had parents who were strong Christians, even though I went to church every Sunday, I never got into any really bad stuff as a kid, even though I understood what it meant to be a Christian, I regularly doubted my salvation. And I would hear a message at church or I would go to camp or some retreat and I would get convicted about the way I was living and, and then I would wonder whether or not I was really saved after all and I would go forward and I'd throw the stick in the fire again and pray the prayer and do all the things. And it was during these times of, of personal introspection, I would try to think back and I would re replay the, the, the countless other times in my past that I, that I, had, uh, that I had somehow uh, made, had some experience. And, and that, that was my way of trying to gain assurance that I was truly saved. But, but really, that just caused me to wonder even more if I had prayed the right prayer and if I had really meant it. And so instead of being convinced of my salvation, I would end up being more confused about it. And the real issue in my mind was, how can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? How, what, what proof can I have? And I was trying to come up with that proof by analyzing my past experiences. And the reason why I never found assurance was because I was looking for it in the wrong place. I was looking for it in the past. And what I didn't realize at the time is that the Bible never encourages us to look back at some past experience to verify whether or not we're a Christian. The Bible challenges us to look for assurance of salvation in the present, specifically in the present pattern of our life. The Bible talks about two grounds of assurance. There's the objective grounds, and there are subjective grounds. Objective grounds, first and foremost, uh, are this. We need to be assured of our salvation or we can be assured of our salvation because the Bible promises eternal life to all those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let me give you some examples of objective grounds of assurance. John chapter 1, verse 1, says this. But as many as received him... Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Later in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then just a few verses later in verse 13, it says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So all of these promises in God's word regarding salvation really form the foundation on which our assurance is built. God promises that if you repent and believe, you will be saved. You will spend eternity in heaven. And you can take God at his word. It's very objective. It's very black and white. But then there's subjective grounds. And not only can we base our salvation on the promises that we see in Scripture, but we can look at the present pattern of our life 
we can look at the, 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 the fundamental changes that God is working in our words and our actions and our attitudes and our desires in our habits and the friends that we choose to be around. And, and we can see if, if, those, if, if those things match up with what the Bible says a Christian should look like and, and live like. Well, as, as I said earlier, as long as I focused on some past prayer I prayed, I, I was unsure of my salvation. But when I began to focus more on the present pattern of my life, that's when I stopped doubting whether or not I was a Christian. Because I was, by the grace of God, seeing my life change. And the way I talked was changing. The way I lived my life Change the way my attitudes change and my desires change and my habits change and the choice of friends change and the choice of music I listen to change and you you name it. And so assurance of salvation is based first and foremost on the promises of God about salvation, but secondly also on the presence of changes in our lives which the Bible says are the natural result of salvation. One of the things that we stuff in our membership packets here at Lakeside is a little, uh, is, a, is a photocopy of a chapter uh, from a book by, that John MacArthur wrote called Save, uh, Beyond, uh, Save Without a Doubt. And it's basically just, how do you know for sure you're saved? And, and this is what he said in, in, that, in that chapter. He said, most contemporary discussions on assurance focused almost exclusively on the objective grounds of assurance. They minimize or dismiss the subjective grounds, thus robbing untold number of believers of a valuable source of assurance. Worse yet, in doing so, they perpetuate the tragic phenomena of false assurance. The point is this. God doesn't want any of us to doubt whether or not we're saved. He wants us to know for sure that we're Christians. He wants us to be absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that our sins are forgiven and we are going to heaven. At the same time, though, God doesn't want us to have false assurance. And by false assurance, what I mean by that is he doesn't want us thinking that we are saved, doesn't want us to think that we're a Christian just because we grew up in a Christian home or because we go to church or because we went forward at some service or we prayed some prayer, or we signed some car, we threw some stick in a fire. We were baptized. We were confirmed. When there is actually no evidence whatsoever in our life to prove that we've actually been born again. And so when it comes to assurance of salvation, which is our subject for this morning, there are really two tragic extremes in the church today. There are those who doubt their salvation who shouldn't, and there are those who don't doubt their salvation who should did you get that? There, there are those who doubt their salvation who shouldn't, and there are those who don't doubt their salvation who should. Let's talk about that first group, those who doubt their salvation who shouldn't. I think there are many Christians who lack assurance of their salvation, and they lack the confidence that their sins are forgiven and that their place in heaven is eternally secure. And as a result, they never truly enjoy the reality of their salvation, they live in constant doubt and fear and they're miserable and they're, pre they're, and they're depressed and, and, and that may describe your, your life. You struggle with doubts of whether or not 
you, you truly know Christ and you find yourself continually preoccupied with your sins and with your failings and you always seem to be vacillating back and forth in your faith and you worry and you wonder whether or not you're going to go to heaven when you die. And it doesn't help because some churches that um, are out there today, some teach that you can never be absolutely sure you're saved until you get to heaven. There's always a possibility that you can mess up somewhere along the way and lose your salvation. And as long as you believe that your salvation depends in part on you, you'll never experience assurance of salvation. At the same time, there are many others within the church today who have a false sense of security about their salvation. They've never once questioned whether or not They've been truly born again, and they attend every they attend church every Sunday. They they play they play in the band. Um, they 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 make their share of charitable donations. Uh, they never do anything that bad, and so they're really smug and secure in their religious routine, fully expecting to go to heaven when they die. Which may describe you. And apparently, if that is you, you have a lot of company. According to a recent survey, 99% of people in America think they're going to heaven. You're like, well, that's off. Well, it may be more, uh, more of an accurate figure than we realize in light of what Jesus said in Matthew 7.22. He said, many, didn't say a few, a handful. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? We did all these things, all these religious things. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The frightening reality is that many, many who claim to be Christians and who assume that they're going to heaven will be shocked when they end up in hell. A book I would highly recommend for you to read at some point is a book by Donald Whitney, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? What the Bible Says About Assurance of Salvation. And he quotes John Bunyan uh, from Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm assuming you're all familiar with, that great analogy or allegory of the Christian faith of this man named uh, Christian going from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And along the way, he encounters characters and circumstances that portray the story, um, which is all of our journey, right, as Christians um, through this life to, until we get to heaven. And he says this, at the end of the book, Christian and his companion, Hopeful, cross a river, which is a picture of death. And just before Christian and Hopeful cross the river, they pass another pilgrim named Ignorance. He limps along badly and obviously prefers to make his pilgrimage alone rather than with others who profess to be believers. Christian and Hopeful talk with him, but then ignorance sends them on ahead. After Christian and Hopeful traverse the river, Bunyan tells of watching them enter the celestial city. He says, when Christian and Hopeful come out of the water, there are shining ones to meet them, and they help them up the hill into the city. 
These angels tell the pilgrims of all the glories they will see and be given as rewards as they approach. Other shining ones and many other believers, including loved ones and famous Christians of the past, come out to welcome them. The king commands that the gates be opened to receive them, and they enter into the joy of the Lord amid the shouts of praise to his name. Strangely, however, Whitney says, Bunyan devotes the last paragraph to the other pilgrim, ignorance. And he notes that ignorance crosses the river without any problem. Instead of walking into the river and eventually finding firm footing within it, ignorance is ferried across by a man named Vain Hope. And by this, Bunyan signifies how the unconverted may have an easy passing from this world to the next, confident in what will prove to be a vain hope of entering the celestial city of heaven. He says, but no one is there to greet ignorance. With difficulty, he makes his way up the hill alone. As he approaches the gates, he expects them to swing open, but nothing happens. And so he begins to knock. Someone looks down and asks what he wants. He pleads for admittance, but the gates stay closed against him. The king commands the two shining ones to go out and take ignorance, bind them hand and foot and carry him away. They take him through the air to a door in the side of the hill further down from the celestial city. Then they open the door and cast him in there. And in the next to last sentence of this classic, Bunyan says this, then I saw that there is a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. I told the people in the new members class this last Wednesday night, our goal is to make it very hard to get to hell from Lakeside Bible Church. And so the question is, how can you know for sure that you are not one of these self-deceived, ignorant people that have vain hope in your salvation? Well, Jesus said, very simply, you will know them by their fruits, Matthew 7, 20. And throughout the word of God, we are challenged to examine the fruit in our lives to see whether or not there's enough evidence to prove that we're truly saved. And if we see the kind of fruit, the kind of actions, the kind of attitudes that the Bible says should be present in a Christian's life, then we can be confident that we are a genuine believer. I mean, we have it right here in 2 Peter, verse, chapter 1, verse 5. And he gives a list of fruits, if you will, or attitudes um, or qualities that should be present in our lives and increasing. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, in that same context, verse 10, he says, therefore, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I told you this is one of two passages in the Bible that challenge us to examine our faith. The other one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Turn over there for a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul was writing to the believers in Corinth. 
And he says there in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So Paul told us to test ourselves and to see if we pass the test. You say, well, what test? How do I take the test? Well, God has supplied us with a spirit-inspired test that we all can take in order to examine ourselves and determine whether or not we're truly saved. And in fact, it's the book right after 2 Peter. We know it as 1 John. And the overarching theme of 1 John is assurance of salvation. And the Apostle John here was just building on the foundation that he laid in his gospel, which he wrote so that unbelievers would believe that in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You may remember when we studied John several years ago, the theme verse of John is this, John 20, verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. When he came to write this letter, 1 John, he was writing to believers so that they would know for sure that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Uh, chapter 5, verse 13, the theme verse of 1 John. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. So in the Gospel of John, he explained the words and the actions that prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God so that people will believe in him and have eternal life. Here in 1 John, he explained the words and the actions that prove that someone is a true believer so that they will know for sure that they have eternal life. And so he provided a, a series of, of practical tests here that reveal whether or not we're truly saved and on our way to heaven. And, and John's tests here uh, in this little letter serve a dual purpose, okay? They're not just designed to convince doubting believers that they're truly saved. They're also intended to convince deceived unbelievers that they aren't truly saved. And I say that because throughout this letter, you see John addressing two groups of people. He talks about you, and then he talks about them or they. He talks about the children of God and the children of the devil. And these two groups have always been present in the church, and they are even present in this room today. We have the saints and the ain'ts, as it said. We, we've, got, we've got those of you who are children of God, and there are some of you who are children of the devil. And if you're part of that former group, the children of God, who struggle with assurance, I hope that you will be encouraged by John's practical test. And you'll be able to walk out of here today more convinced than ever that you are a true child of God and you are definitely on your way to heaven. But if you are part of that latter group, the children of the devil, who falsely presume that you're safe and secure in your salvation, you will be exposed by these practical tests. But my prayer is not that you would leave here exposed and bummed out, discouraged, 
but this, this would be an opportunity for you to truly commit your life to follow Jesus Christ. That you today would be the day of your salvation. And so let's look at these tests, and there's 12 of them, 12 tests of a true Christian, and I told you, you, you all needed this uh, sermon sheet today, because where the outline normally is, is a quiz. And so if you didn't get one, you might want to hop up and run and get one on the back table. Uh, it's okay, don't be embarrassed, you, you need to take this, okay, this, this test. And, and, I've, and I've worded these tests in the form of true or false questions that we all need to ask ourselves in order to determine whether or not we're true or false Christians, did you catch that? These are true or false questions that we all need to ask ourselves in order to determine whether or not we are true or false Christians. And by the way, you're like, hey, thanks for the pop quiz, Pastor. I didn't know this was going to happen today. Didn't even study for this. Well, don't worry. It's an open book quiz, okay? And we're, gonna go, we're just going to look at 1 John, and we're just going to, the answers are right here, okay? So let's look at number one. Do you enjoy fellowship with God, Jesus Christ, and other Christians? Don't answer yet. Let's see where we get this question from. Chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Again, he's talking about Jesus here. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him, and announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If, you, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of, his, of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. So, the question is very simple. Do you enjoy fellowship with God? Do you enjoy fellowship with Jesus Christ? And do you enjoy fellowship with other Christians? Or is this like the only time you connect with God? And whatever you connect with God means to you, like Sunday morning, you just pop in and pop out. This is your one weekly connection with the Lord. Or do you, are you relating to the Lord uh, uh, and, and to Christ and, and to God on, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, on an hour-to-hour basis? Uh, do, you, do you feel at home among, around other believers? Or do you feel out of place? If you feel more at home at your school, being around unbelievers, you feel more comfortable at a, at, a, at a bar or sports events when you're just hanging out with a bunch of unbelievers and this kind of feels awkward, that's not a good sign. The question is, do you enjoy fellowship with God, Jesus Christ, and other Christians? Number two, are you sensitive to sin in your life? Are you sensitive the sin in your life. Notice, I didn't say, do you have sin in your life? <laughs> we all have sin in our lives. The question is, are you sensitive to it? Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 
So are you willing to admit and agree with God and what God's Word says that you are a sinner? And that you, and that whenever you do sin, you are quick to, you're sensitive to that and you're quick to agree with God. That's what it means to confess, that you say the same thing about your sin that God says about it, that it's it's displeasing to him, it's dishonoring to him, it's disobedient to him. You, You confess your sin to him, you seek his forgiveness, you seek the covering of Jesus Christ. You know you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, who intercedes for you at his right hand. Not that the Father needs to be reminded, but saying, hey, I paid for that sin. I died for that sin. So the question is, are you sensitive to sin in your life? Give yourself an answer, true or false. Number three, do you consistently strive to obey God's word? Do you consistently strive to obey God's word? Notice I didn't say, do you always obey God's word? Because none of us are perfectly obedient. But notice the the heart of a true believer. This is chapter two, verse three. By this we know that we've come to know him. That should catch your attention. Wait, you're telling me I can know that I'm a Christian? Absolutely. If we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? Liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And then look at chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. This is chapter 5, verse 3 now. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. If you were griping about having to come to church today, uh, if if you were like, oh man, I got to read my Bible again today oh man, I gotta pray, or oh, I've gotta be nice to my sister or my brother, or I've gotta, you know, I've gotta cut into my, my income a little bit to, to give to the church, you know, and I'm, so I know I'm supposed to give the Lord's work, but man, oh, this is hard, it's hard to write this check, you know. If, 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 if it's a pain in the neck to obey the commands of scripture, that's not a good sign. Because a true believer loves to obey God's word. They have a sincere desire to obey the Lord. Doesn't mean they do it perfectly every time. Doesn't mean they don't sin, they don't mess up sometimes, but they consistently strive to obey God's word. Give yourself an answer, true or false. Number four, do you hate the world in its ways? Do you hate the world in its ways? Chapter two, verse 15 says this, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of of God lives forever. So, do you hate the world, or do you love the world? I mean, we live in the world. We talk about having to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? All of us struggle with the lust of the the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. But, again... Is the trajectory of your heart towards the world? Do you long for the things that the world has to offer? Or do you really don't care about that stuff and and I just want to be pleasing to Christ? I just want to live for Jesus. Jesus is all I need. Do you hate the world and its ways? Or how about this? Do you love Jesus more than you love the world? Might that be a better way to say that? Number five, 
Do you long for the return of Jesus Christ and to be made like him? Do you long for the return of Jesus Christ and to be made like him? Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared to us as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So do you look forward to that day when you will be completely transformed into the image of Christ? Or is Jesus' return like no big deal to you? Like, yeah, whatever. Or worse, are you scared for Jesus to come back? Like, that's a fearful thought to you? That's not a good sign. So give yourself an answer. Do you long for the return of Jesus Christ and to be made like him? Number six, do you see a decreasing frequency of sin in your life? Do you see a decreasing frequency of sin in your life? We've talked about this passage a lot, but let's look at it again. 1 John chapter 3, verse um, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Don't miss the word practice here. It's used multiple times in this text, which tells us that's the point. Uh, Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. You're like, oh, shoot, I'm out. I sin. I still sin. I must not be a believer. Well, notice what he goes on to say. He clarifies here. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Okay, here it is. You want to know? Whether you're a child of God or a child of the devil, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So again, the word practice is the operative word here. To practice means to do something over and over again. It's habitual. And so if you see that your sin is just continuous and it's, and it's, it's ongoing and there's no change, in fact, it's not getting any better, it's getting worse, uh, that might be an indication you don't, you don't have the Spirit of God in you. What you should see as a Christian is a decreasing frequency of sin in your life. Sin will never be fully eradicated from your life until you get to heaven, but there, in the meantime, there should be a decreasing frequency of it. In other words, you should be sinning less and less. So do you see that in your life? Give yourself an answer. And those of you that have walked with the Lord longer than the rest of us, keep in mind the paradox of the Christian life that the closer you get to the Lord, the more sinful you see how you, the more sinful, uh, you, see how, how you are, or you see how sinful you really are. So some of you are like, oh, that's not, I, I feel like I'm a worse sinner today than I was when I first got saved. That's a good sign. That means you're being more and more exposed to the holiness. You're closer to the spotlight that's revealing, right, your sin. Number seven, do you sacrificially love other Christians? Do you sacrificially love other Christians? Chapter three, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and Know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So the question is, do you sacrificially love other Christians? That's the idea of brother, not like the brother you live with in the house that you always get in trouble with, right? Not that brother. It's like your brother sitting here in church together, your brother or sister. Do you sacrificially love other Christians? Number eight. Do you experience answered prayer? Do you experience answered prayer? Chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Which, by the way, can I just say it this way? And I think I prayed this earlier. But, you know, there's some people that say, you know, and I've, I've tell people this, you know, I know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die. And some would say, well, that's arrogant. No, that's what the Bible calls assurance. And it's confidence. It's not presumption. He says, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So uh, a, a, a good fruit or evidence that you're saved is, number one, that you pray and you bring your request before the Lord, and you have experienced answered prayer. And sometimes, by the way, those prayers are no. You're like, well, the Lord didn't answer my prayer. I didn't get the, you know, the new car I wanted or whatever I was asking for. Well, maybe because God says, no, I don't want that for you. That wouldn't be good for you. He answered your prayer, right? Or maybe it was wait. But, but can you honestly say you experience answer prayer, true or false. Give yourself an answer there. Number nine, do you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Chapter three, verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know that Jesus, before he returned to heaven, said, hey, it's, it's better that I go because then I can send a comforter, I can send the encourager, I can send the, the one who will come alongside you and, and lead you into all truth and, 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 and his spirit will, will, my spirit will bear witness with your spirit and in other words, the spirit of God will give you assurance of your salvation. Um, look at uh, chapter four, verse 13. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. That's not the verse we need to look at. Let me see here. Um, chapter four. Verse 13. Oh, there it is. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And then chapter 5, verse 7. Um, For there are three that testify the spirit, 
right? And the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. So the idea there is Romans 8 talks about how the Spirit testifies with our spirit. So do you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you experience the Spirit's guidance in helping you, illuminating your mind to understand His Word, uh, leading you in decisions that you make as you pray? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Do you see those things being produced in your life? That's a work of the Spirit. That's evidence that the Spirit of God is in you. That you're growing in those fruits rather than just feeding your flesh all the time. Number 10, can you discern between spiritual truth and error? Can you discern between spiritual truth and error? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, if they have right, accurate Christology, uh, that's a good sign that they're being led by the Spirit. Every spirit, verse 3, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard, that is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. We, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, Ask yourself, are, have you seen evidence that, that you can discern the difference between someone who's speaking the truth and someone who's speaking error? Can you tell the difference between biblical truth and heresy? That's evidence that, that, that you're saved. Give yourself an answer, true or false. Can you discern between spiritual truth and error? Number 11, do you believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ? It's pretty basic, right? Do you believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's, that's subjective assurance right there. Black and white. Uh, verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then look at verses 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has, been, has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Very black and white objective assurance there. So you're seeing how the subject of assurance kind of blurs together at some, eventually, ultimately, with a subjective assurance. And then lastly, number 12, have you suffered persecution because of your faith? Have you suffered persecution because of your faith in Christ? Look at chapter 3, verse 12. In the context of loving one another, he says, not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. His deeds were evil. And his brother, Abel's, were righteous. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. 
And Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that whoever lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So ask yourself, have you ever been persecuted because of your commitment to Christ? Now that may not look like the persecuted church that we pray for, we hear about from time to time, people getting arrested, kidnapped, raped, killed. But have you been made fun of? Have you been passed over for a position? Um, have you been ostracized? Um, have you been cut off in some relationship because of your commitment to Christ? The question is, have you suffered persecution because of your faith? Give yourself an answer, true or false. There you have it, 12 tests of a true Christian. How'd you do? Did you pass or fail? Let me say something very carefully. And if you fell asleep during the, the test, okay, you failed, all right? But let me say this, don't miss this, okay? These are not things we need to do in order to be saved. These are things that will be true of us if we are saved. Did you hear that? These are not things that we need to do in order to be saved. These are things that will be true of us if we are saved. And if these things are true of you, by the grace of God, you can be confident that you're a Christian. Not that you're perfect, but there's the presence of these evidences, of these fruits in your life. But if you couldn't answer true to most of these questions, then whatever you experienced in the past is likely irrelevant. And you need to seriously question whether or not you're a Christian. Years ago, I heard it put it this way. If you were put on trial for being a Christian today, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it clarifies these often confusing, complicated subjects. Thank you that you have provided us a way to know for sure. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to just wait and see with our fingers crossed but we can have the confidence, Lord, that we are in Christ. And so, Lord, for those that came here perhaps doubting their salvation and they are truly your children, may you just encourage them and bolster their faith, give them the confidence that they lack through your word. And Lord, if there's someone who came today that they never even think about this, they just assume that they're good to go, that, Lord, you would expose them today and again, not just so they would be discouraged, but so that they could truly repent and believe. And Lord, I can't make them do that. Only you can. And so would you do that for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.